Uh, and now we have, uh, we'll turn to the reading of the word in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I'll read verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom, you, whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed, it is uh, a joy to get to uh, dig into John 17 here uh, with you all. Uh, there, it reminded me of a movie uh, from maybe 10, 12 years back called Flash of Genius. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, Flash of Genius is about a guy named Robert Kearns, a real-life story. Robert Kearns invented uh, the intermittent windshield wiper. He didn't invent the windshield wiper, but the intermittent part. Uh, he had... from. He just saw it one day and then worked really hard. He was an electrician of some kind, a uh, scholar of all those kinds of things, and figured out how to put this together. He pitched it uh, to Ford Motor Company, and they, in essence, said uh, no, but then they used it anyway in one of their cars. So he, he sued them, and other manufacturers then used it too, assuming it was kind of a common uh, industry standard thing. And so he went to trial in all of these things, uh, and it took... Not just months, but years of his life. Uh, so much of his life that he eventually lost his family because he spent so much time on this case. He lost his attorney after uh, he refused to settle because there's a settlement where he, was, he would get a lot of money but would uh, not be told, I'm sorry. You know, the automaker would not have to admit fault in that. So he refused that, but he kept fighting it and fighting it, making his case before the judge and jury, and eventually won, uh, after years of giving everything he had. You know, we, we look at this passage, and you know, I think Robert Kearns was in the right. I think he invented it. He had the patent for it, uh, and I think the patent was being violated. I think his case was solid. And, but sometimes the case has to be made. Sometimes you need to have someone representing your case before the judge. And we see Jesus doing that here. Jesus is interceding for us. He is standing and representing us before the Father. He is uh, making our case, which is a solid one, and we'll get more into what our case is. But 
we need to be, uh, as, we, as we look at this, sorry, we will see uh, so much of, of, like, of one, what the case is Jesus is making for us, and, and then also why he's making that for us. Uh, you know, at, at King's Cross, we want to know more about who this Jesus is. We want to know what kind of guy he was, because we know that he wasn't just a good teacher. We know he just didn't have a lot of nice things to say. I mean, he certainly had those things, and he was a good teacher, but there's something about who he was that meant that what he did was bigger than just giving us rules to live by. And that makes a huge difference in our lives. And so we gather around Jesus to know more about him so that we can grow closer to God and closer even to one another. So in this passage this morning, we're going to look at at these three things. One, how Jesus shows us what his name is. Jesus knows all who became his. Jesus prays that we be kept his. I'll say it again and I'll go through it again. Jesus shows us what his name is. Jesus knows all who became his. Jesus prays that we be kept his. So first, Jesus shows us what his name is. It says, uh, he prays, you know, I've manifested your name, Father. I've manifested your name. He's praying to God and he's saying, I've manifested your name to those uh, you have given me out of the world. To make manifest means to reveal, to show something that, that is spectacular, something that is previously maybe hidden or just not clear. He has made manifest the name of God. And God doesn't do this incredibly often, but we do see in Scripture times when, when God will reveal his name to somebody. We see this in, in Exodus chapter 3. God calls Moses through a burning bush. God calls him and, uh, and says, Moses, I want you to go and bring my people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And Moses thinks this is a pretty tall order. Uh, how is this going to happen when I go? No one's going to believe me. How, how am I going to convince the Israelites even that they should you know, like be behind this idea? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. He says, my name is I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. God says, say this, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob has sent me to you. The, the word, the name I am is absolutely incredible because it, it's like, it, it's, it's a self-existent title. Uh, you and me, we all have names that uh, were given to us in the context of a family. We're all given to us in the context of, you know, if your name, last name is Johnson, then somewhere, maybe not literally in your recent uh, ancestry, but somewhere back in the day, there was someone named John, and all of his kids were named Johnson. Or if your last name is Smith, there's a good chance that somewhere in the back of your ancestry was someone who was a Smith, who was actually working with their hands. And, and uh, our names mean something. Our last name means we're connected to that history. God's name is not connected or dependent on anything, that there's no one before him. There is no one who can say, yes, I am above him or am better than him. God is self-existent. And so when, when we approach him, when we think about him, it's, he's saying, I am not defined by any of you, but everything is defined by me. Is who am I? Well, I am the God. I am the, the God whom the concept of God has been based. I am uh, the I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of all your fathers, he says. 
I'm not dependent in any way on you, but you rather on me. Jesus uh, manifests this in, in one way in Matthew 17, in general in the way that Jesus lived, but especially in Matthew 17 when he goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured. Uh, he spiritually, physically transforms, uh, and his, his clothes are brilliant white as light. His face shone like the sun, and his disciples freak out, and they don't know what to do. They say dumb things, and they fall flat on their faces, and really in worship and fear, and because Jesus is not just, again, this good teacher, but as he's revealing who God is through his transfiguration, reveals that, that he, with his Father, is holy. Uh, John, the, the writer of this gospel, was also uh, stranded, exiled on the island of Patmos, and Jesus, the, ex, the resurrected Jesus, came to him once, and uh, John says, I, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That there's something about the holiness of God that we must, uh, that we're supposed to know about, right? Jesus didn't come and say, let's just skip the holiness of God part. Let me talk about the love. No, he says we need to understand the holiness of God part first, too. Now, this seems to a lot of people an oppressive idea. Uh, a lot, it's not very popular to think of a God who is almighty, a God who is holy, a God who, like, it, it almost, uh, you might say it feels thuggish. Uh, it feels like God is being uh, a bit, maybe like a bully or something. Like we think of all these things when we think uh, like we are uh, immovable objects and we think of him as an unstoppable force and we're like, no, no, we'll move him. Thank you very much. Well, if you know about physics, that, that doesn't work very well. Uh, he is truly unstoppable. He is immovable. And let me tell you, though, why it's a good thing. We actually want to have a God who is perfectly righteous, who is the perfect judge, who is perfectly good, who is perfectly holy. My family and I, uh, the other night, were, uh, were watching To Kill a Mockingbird. And we, the 1962 movie, maybe you've seen it, uh, fantastic musical score. Uh, I love the soundtrack. Uh, but anyway, it's a story of Tom Robinson, a 25-year-old man of color who's falsely accused of raping a 19-year-old white woman. And in actuality, the young woman was making a pass at him, and he refused her. And in all of that, it all ended up with her accusing him falsely of rape. And so there's a trial. And in the trial, there's a jury, supposedly, of his peers. And, and Atticus Finch is his attorney. Atticus Finch makes a rock-solid case in his defense. Yet, the jury finds him guilty anyway. And later that night... Tom, who had a little bit of hope for a while, has lost all of his hope. And, and Atticus is talking about appeals, and Tom doesn't think that the appeal is even worth a try. He tries to escape from prison, and even after being warned, he, he keeps running away and is shot and killed by a prison guard. Now, you might think, why was he not acquitted? Why did Harper Lee, the author of the book, why, why did she not make him acquitted in the story? Isn't that what we want to see? Well, his conviction, rather, exposed some things in the majority culture in America at that time. It exposed some things. If, if, if Tom Robinson had been acquitted, the movie, the book, would not nearly have had the same impact as it did because he was wrongfully convicted. It, it exposed the, the, the racism in the, hearts, in the heart of our culture. Now, now why do I bring about this? Why do I bring this up? Because, where am I going with this? Because while there is no injustice in God, right? He's not the unjust court we're talking about here. That's not how it carries over. But rather, we, are, we hold court. 
And there is injustice in each and every one of us. We make judgments about others based on what they look like or, or how much money they make or how smart they are, or what they've achieved in life, or even, yes, the color of their skin. We fail sometimes to acknowledge truth when to acknowledge it would require us to change how we live. And yes, we often issue unjust verdicts on others when it helps us keep our comfort and our status quo. But when you look at that kind of life and you look at whenever you see racism anywhere, whenever you see that, the, the emotion that characterizes that life isn't happiness. It's not freedom. It's like, look what we can get away with. Look, look how we can keep ourselves comfortable by, 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 by being unjust. It's not happiness. It's not freedom. It's actually fear. Fear of losing power. Fear of losing what you have. Fear of losing control. But we have a just and holy God who is perfectly righteous, the perfect judge. He is self-existent. You know, we, this last week we've been really worried about the hurricanes, and rightfully so, and, and we worry about them because we are dependent in so many ways on having shelter that is not being damaged by the water, on having food and, and, and water and clothing and all those things. We need that. God is not. He is self-existent in and of himself. He's not dependent on anything. And we have, he is just and holy. And, uh, and with him, if we, you know, he's able to do things in us that we need and actually want to be done. If we had a God that did everything we wanted, if we had a God that allowed us uh, to live our lives without, being, without challenging us, then we would never be forced to examine our hearts. And if we were never forced to examine our hearts, it'd be virtually impossible for us to change and live in the light, in truth, in real freedom. We would think we're comfortable, but we would actually just still be living in fear. So the fact that we have a God we can fear in a respect kind of way means that he ultimately is able to free us from the fear that we have of losing control and losing what we have. We have a just and holy God who can show me my heart grime. And in contrast to his perfect goodness, I see that, but then I can also catch a glimpse of what I should be, a glimpse of what the life we were designed to have, free from fear, can be, knowing that we are loved and loving others. And perhaps the most helpless feeling is being in a close relationship with someone, realizing that your actions and attitudes are hurtful to that person, and in the moment feeling convicted, but also the lack of power or ability to change. And if you love that person, you'll fear hurting them again. We need a God who can't be mastered, but a God who exerts mastery over everything, even a God who can conquer our unholiness, who can conquer our hearts and change us from the inside. So when Jesus manifests his name to his own, we learn why it's a good thing to have a God that we can fear, a God who is all holy. Jesus manifests his name to his own. I only really gave you half of it. And I'll give you the second half in a second. Because Jesus shows us what his name is, but point two, he knows all who became his. See, God's holiness doesn't just stop with, with this sense of fearing God, which is a good kind of fear. But Jesus calls God Holy Father. Holy Father. Actually, in the Greek, the Father comes first. I don't know if that's for emphasis or if that's just how it lined up. I think, though, it's for emphasis. The Father who is holy. In two words, we have probably no better a summary of the gospel 
that we have a holy Father, a God who is the furthest he could ever be from us. We could never reach his, his perfection, his goodness, his love. We could never reach that, his justice and righteousness. We are never that just, never that righteous. But he is also near to us and intimate with us. The holy Father, the transcendent and the intimate together in, one, in two words in one name. As Jesus prays to his Father, he prays, uh, in revealing his name, not just as Jesus, the only begotten son, but Jesus who knows all of, his, all of the father's adopted children who've been reborn. Because Jesus showed them with his life not just the holiness of God, not just the transcendence, but the mercy and the grace of God. He says, I've manifested your name to the people you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is, is from you. Um, he, this is, we are are precious and valuable to him. And he's, he's, this is the, the kind of language he's using, like the things, the people, those who are yours, those who are ours, that there's a sense of, of worth, like the treasure that we have, the treasure that we share. Now, this might seem a little odd uh, when you think of who the disciples were, right? Because the disciples, like, they were taken out of the world, but the disciples were not like the top 12 most religious people in Israel. They were not uh, even the most likely to be the top 12 religious people in all of Israel. They were just random dudes, and they came from all walks of life. You had uh, Peter, uh, James, Andrew, John. They're all fishermen. Uh, you had, you know, blue-collar worker. You had Matthew, white-collar tax collector. Uh, you had uh, Simon the Zealot a rebel who spent a lot of his time, I don't know, with no collar, uh, and uh, a lot of his time protesting and uh, like plotting insurrection and things like that. Uh, and you've got all of them together in the same group. Uh, and then you've also got uh, Nathaniel, who uh, with one line that he gives in one of the Gospels reveals that he doesn't really like anybody who's from Nazareth. And Jesus, hello, is from Nazareth. So I don't know how this group came together, but that's, that's just how Jesus does it. He brings those that really shouldn't be together or even those that shouldn't be in his family in the first place. And he, but he calls us his own. He makes them their own. The disciples messed up and got it wrong so many times. So how is it that we become a part of our family, of God's family rather? First, it's how we get there out of the world. What is the world like? What are we like when we were in the world? Uh, well, we are spiritually dead. We are not spiritually inexperienced or spiritually curious, spiritually handicapped. We are uh, dead, not mostly dead, dead. Uh, and it says in John chapter 1 that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. In John 12, Jesus reveals that because it was mostly because their hearts were hard, because they loved the praise of one another more than the praise of the only true God. That this, this spiritual death, this spiritual, you know, you can, you can think all kinds of nice things about what that spiritual death means. And then what does that mean? I mean, it doesn't mean that we're physically dead. It doesn't mean that we're like, we're actually born physically. No, we're actually physically alive, but spiritually unable to recognize who God is, spiritually unable to fully appreciate who Jesus is, spiritually unable to bow your knee and say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you with my life. Because we're resistant. In Romans 1, it says that we even suppress the truth 
in our spiritual death. Suppress the truth with our behavior. Ephesians 2 says that, that we are uh, dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Uh, how do we live when we're physically alive but spiritually dead? Well, we do whatever the world does. We're following the course of the world. And you know how this does. And if you, if you follow the news or culture or anything like that, you can see the impact that like, just one thought can have on the whole culture. And a culture can shift based on one thought here, one thought there. And the world literally does whatever it wants to do, whatever it thinks best. It gathers as many people on its course as it can. That's what it is to be spiritually dead. And Jesus, in the midst of that, it's as, what, what does Ephesians say? Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 4. It says, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, uh, doing whatever we wanted, living in the passions of our flesh. But God, the gospel again in two other words, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That is what God does. That is what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to, uh, as John 3 says, not just to condemn the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came to leave the 99 to get the one. And in Luke 15, we see that, that there will be more joy in heaven over one, one sinner who repents than over, or, over 99 righteous, so-called righteous people, people who think they're good, who think they don't need to repent. You know, God... If you, you feel like a scumbag at all, if you feel like your life is messed up, um, God, you're, you're so close. God is so, all you have to do is say, God, I need you. And I know I need you. And I see that you've sent Jesus to, to, to pave the way that I could have a relationship with you. It, it actually creates more distance between you and God when you insist that you're actually good and, and, and not needing much forgiveness very often. You know, Jesus came, we have to understand as we see uh, in this passage um, that uh, the disciples, uh, now they did not perfectly keep his word, right? We know that. So how do we make sense of that? Because Jesus says that they kept my word. But what that means is that they understood and received his word that he was the son of God. They received his word. They believed him that he was who he said he was. That, and with Jesus, his identity and his mission go hand in hand. Uh, it, much like with like a firefighter in full gear. If a firefighter in full gear walks into your home, walks into your office, uh, he's not looking or she's not looking for something nice to do. He's just not looking for random things like, hey, how are you doing? Let's hang out. No, if they're in full gear, they're there with a purpose. And you're thinking, what is that purpose? Some, something's in trouble. Well, someone's in trouble. And it, it might be me, it might not be me, but I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay attention to what this person has to say. Jesus came with his identity and his mission tied in, in one. So as he reveals who the Father is and reveals his own identity at the same time, reveals that he came to seek and save the lost. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And so when we feel sick, uh, when we feel unhealthy, when we feel lost, uh, that's God showing us a little bit of the truth. Run through that. It's a, it's a bad feeling to feel like you're broken, but God uses that. Run to that. Run to the Father with that. 
Because again, God is not just uh, holy. He's also merciful. God brings Moses a second time up a mountain in Exodus 34 and tells him more of his name. Not just the self-existent one, but a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, like the disciples, Jesus draws those to himself who aren't the best fit, who are misfits. We're all misfits, and it's amazing that God would call any of us his own, but he does. And as a result, this can change and ought to change how we live. And I wish I had 50 more minutes to talk about that. Oh, come to Sonship, guys, uh, and maybe we'll do something. Come to the women's Bible study. You hear the same kind of stuff, uh, women. Um, but, like, that changes everything. You know, it changes our, our prayer life, for one. As we see Jesus pray, it, it opens uh, the doorway that, through what Jesus has done for us to pray to the Father. Tim Keller once says that no one can approach a king in the middle of the night asking for a glass of water except the king's child. He says we have that kind of access. At any time of day, that our Father in heaven, yes, he's holy, yes, he's the king, but he's also our Father and we're his. He's drawn us into his family. So Jesus has shown us what his name is, and he knows all. He knows us. He knows you. He knows all who became his. And finally, Jesus prays that we be kept his. He prays that we be kept his. Uh, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one as we are one. Uh, and he goes, I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. To keep them in Jesus, uh, keep them in the, in the Father's name. To keep them uh, believing. To keep them in the family, so to speak. Uh, to keep them in their name, in the sense of God's power and his goodness all at once. And, and how does Jesus pray uh, that the Father would keep us. Well, what's an example of this? Well, we see an example of this actually in Luke chapter 22. That uh, it's the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples. The Last Supper is wrapping up. And Jesus turns to Peter. And he says, you know, actually he called, his, his first name is Simon, really. Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, what does that mean, to sift you like wheat? Well, if you know that story, you see Peter, soon after, not long after that, uh, was hanging around the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was and kind of watching the trial, the, the phony trial from a distance. And, and someone asked him, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, no, no, I'm not. I don't know what you're talking about. And then someone else asked him, and again, he denies it. The third time he's asked, and even a third time, he denies that he even knows Jesus, let alone was one of his best friends. And then, as predicted, there, Jesus also said, you'll do that before the rooster crows. And as predicted, the rooster crows, because it's that early in the morning. Now, life, I don't know about you, but sometimes life feels like I'm being sifted. Life sometimes feels like I am faced with all kinds of things that want to challenge my faith. Whether it be literally, uh, are you ashamed of being a Christian? Or it be something more like uh, being challenged in, in whether I'm going to act as I know I should. Whether I'm going to be able to, uh, to love somebody 
that I see who needs help, whether I'm going to uh, intentionally uh, surrender something small that's been taken from me so that I can see past that to to love somebody, whether I'm going to lose my temper or not, whether I'm going to uh, uh, do something out of greed, whatever it may be, Life is sifting. Life is a process of challenging. Life does challenge our faith in the gospel and whether we believe that we are as loved as we are loved, whether it's really true. And Jesus prays for Peter, and he's praying for us. Now, Peter denied Jesus, but then was restored. He, he didn't actually fall away. That, that although he sinned and broke his Savior's heart, even, that later Peter was restored. And, and even like with that new humility, Peter, who was a pretty arrogant and bold guy, became a humble and bold guy. Still not perfect. We know that from, but no one is. Still someone was restored. Jesus prays for us in the midst of all the sifting that we experience. And, and again, sometimes in that sifting, I alluded to, uh, to, to how we, we see things uh, because God is righteous, see things in us that are unrighteous. And, and I mentioned before that we often want more than anything to change, and sometimes we feel like, how can we change? Well, we change. A part of God keeping us, a part of God holding us, is that he changes us. And, and he, he works in us. Um, a man named Kevin Still was a, a staff leader at Camp Barnabas, where I worked a couple summers in college, and he first told me the story of Eustace Scrub. I know I did C.S. Lewis illustrations last week, but I don't care. I'm doing them again. Uh, but I just love this. There was a boy called, this is the first line of the, of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the first paragraph. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents call him, called him Eustace Clarence. His masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and were a special kind of underclothes. Eustace Clarence liked animals, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card. Eustace is not an easy child. Uh, he is, he's a booger. He's a turd bucket, as we would say in some parts of, uh, well, I don't know if I should, that's a family word sometimes we use. Uh, and... Uh, he is, he is difficult, and he's nasty to everybody. In, he gets sucked into a painting, and he goes to Narnia, right? Because that's how it works. Uh, and so he is just a nasty boy, and one day he's off walking by himself, and he uh, hears a noise. It's starting to rain, and as it's starting to rain, he sees this cave, and there's smoke coming out of the cave. It's a dragon's cave, but the dragon is dying, and the dragon is dead. So he goes to check out to see if the dragon's really dead. It really is dead, and he sees all this treasure. And so he thinks, I think I'm going to have this treasure, the dragon's dead. I'm going to take the treasure for myself. And he puts on a golden bracelet, and it's raining. He's just waiting for the rain to pass, and so he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, realizes that he has become a dragon, which really was just an outward manifestation of who he was on the inside. And this is a process for him. I mean, he, he has some redemptive moments in the chapters to follow, but eventually he can't change back. So Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion calls him to himself and eventually has to dig his claws deep into his chest to rip off the dragon flesh and throws him in a, a, um, into a pool of water 
that stings like anything, but afterwards he's fresh, he's clean, he's new, he's free. You know, sometimes God to hold us means that, yeah, he, he does things in our lives as he shows us ways we need to change. He also gives us the power to change. He does that changing in us. So we're not left hopeless. We're not left to live in fear or to, res- to try to fix ourselves even. Like I would give you 10 tips on how to be a better Christian or whatever, but like, let me make this point that ultimately I can give you those tips, but you don't have the power in and of yourself to do more than maybe modify your schedule, to change your heart, you need God to do a deeper work. After this, Eustace is changed. Because God is not just a God of power, but also of promise. So we can know when God works in us, it's for our good. He's the good shepherd. He not only keeps us, he holds us, he guides us. And I heard this the other day. Sometimes, and I... And chew on this for a while, but sometimes the, the best evidence that we are his, that we are a Christian, that you are a Christian, is when you see God working in you, even when you're not trying, even when you're running the other way, even when you're resisting to have your heart change, and you're the most stubborn you could ever be, one of the biggest, best evidences of that God is your father, that you are one of his, that you are his child. So when you see him working in you, even when you're not trying, at the same time, in view of that mercy and grace, it does make us want to honor him, doesn't it? So we see, oh, this is good. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Uh, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? But even she may forget. But God says, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Our name is on his hand. And by the way, that's going to be a pretty cool tattoo. I don't know what that looks like. But can you imagine having the name of everybody you care about in some some way written on your hand? So you can always, always be mindful of them, always knowing what they're going through, always, always being mindful of the fact that they are yours. And then Jesus interceding for us as we are sifted, you know, pleading our case. We'll never be without representation before the Father. The case is always rock solid in our defense. Now, what is that case? What is that case that is on our behalf? If Jesus is interceding for us, um, don't we have to be innocent before a judge to, like, be declared innocent, right? Don't we have to actually be innocent? How How do we become innocent? because of what Jesus did for us. We have, there's a, a, a highly acclaimed musical ensemble called Kiss. And uh, they, uh, in one of their albums, I don't know them that well, but before the makeup days, uh, they had this one album and they had a song where they say this, the jealous and the lonely, they try to tear us apart. But let them come between us. That's when the trouble starts. Because there's one thing I know. I'll be beside you wherever you go. You can be sure. Someone to carry you into the light. Swear with all my might. I'll be there. I'll fight hell to hold you. You see, Jesus actually fought hell to hold us. He endured the, the, the being betrayed by his best friends and, and, and even left, abandoned by the rest of his disciples who didn't betray him or, or deny him. 
He was wrongfully arrested. Uh, he was wrongfully accused. He endured that crazy trial where all these people came up and lied about what they saw him do or didn't do. Uh, he endured the mocking and the beating and the spitting and the crown of thorns and the, uh, and the cross and the pain and the agony, not just of the physical side of it, but as our sins were placed on him, the Father could not bear to look at such an ugly sight and he turned his face away as he died on that cross. He fought hell to hold us, to declare us innocent in the sight of God. And that status that we have can never change because Jesus did it for us once for all. As Hebrews 9 says, uh, you know, the high priest once had to offer sacrifices repeatedly, but Jesus offered himself once for all. So Christ offered once to bear the sins of many. He will come back a second time, not to bear with sin again, but to, not to deal with sin, but to save us, to restore us, to bring us into heaven, those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, when we know this, this can change us. You know, Robert Kearns, for example, he fought, he fought hell to hold on to his patent. He fought hell to win his case, the guy who invented the windshield wipers, right? But he lost his family in the process. Like, Fighting has a cost. But, you know, in a sense, there are a lot of people around him who say that, that it was more than just a desire to, to win what was rightfully his. It was proving himself. And if he had only known, I don't know him, uh, but if, if perhaps if he had known better that his reputation and his righteousness before the only court that matters, the court of God, if that, his reputation was flawless and he was loved and appreciated, invaluable to the Father who calls him his own, that maybe he would have been able to turn to his family and love them better in the process. One last word. As Jesus shows us what his name is, as he knows all who became his, as he prays that we be kept his. From the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our hope. That is our heart's longing that you would indeed bring what you're doing in us to completion. That you would not leave us to struggle, uh, that you would give us, and with your power, that you would uh, give us a sense of you still working in us, and by your power that you would change us. Father, we struggle with all kinds of things. I pray, Father, this week that you would show us your power of how you can change our hearts. I pray this week that you would show us and, uh, and remind us of the, the verdict that is already in for us before you because of what your son Jesus has done. Father, I pray this would transform how we interact with those around us. I pray this would transform even our posture towards the world and towards, towards you. I pray this would also transform how we interact with the world, that your grace would overflow out of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.